here. We're looking at the Gospel of Luke. And we are here in chapter 15 uh, once again. And before we kind of dive in, if you were here last week, you know that we talked about two parables, a parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the missing coin. And so today uh, we're looking at the third parable. Now, before I read this, uh, it is by far one of the most well-known parables of all of them that we have. I, I want to read uh, just the first two verses uh, so that you, we can kind of understand exactly what is happening, be reminded of what is happening, and why it is that Jesus is actually using this parable. And verse 1 begins like this, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus tells the first two parables, and then once done with those, he gets to verse 11, which says this. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the wealth that will belong to me. So he divided his assets between them. And a few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant region. And there he squandered his wealth in dissolute living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that region. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that region who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then the elder brother became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours came back who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do pray that you would speak through this parable. Give us the ears to hear. And the eyes to see. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So uh, last week when we were talking about the the power of parables, we compared it to a mouse. And we said that if there is a living mouse that is about to pounce on top of you, it's a bit like what you will do, of course, is you will scream if you're me, you will throw up your hands, and you will run. Whereas if it is an unconscious mouse, then you will have all the freedom in the world to get as close as you want, and you can test it, and you can probe it, and you can look more closely at it, and you can ponder it for a much longer time. And if you don't understand exactly what I'm meaning by this, then go back last week, watch the first few minutes of the sermon, and you will understand why I say this is a bit like the power of a parable. But one of the other things that's very powerful about parables is the ways in which they can speak so dramatically different to us depending upon our context. So this is especially true, perhaps, for this particular parable. There's been a lot of research done around this parable. And the question was asked in different parts of our world, why is it exactly that the younger son ended up as he did? Why did he end up hungry and broken? And in Russia, the most prominent answer was, well, he, he did this because of the famine. That's why he ended up in the place that he did. In the continent of Africa, when they asked many people there, the most prominent answer was, well, because he he didn't have any friends. He didn't have any community to kind of help him out. When they asked people in North America, the most prominent answer, not surprisingly, was, well, because, you know, he didn't use his resources very well. He was perhaps too lazy. The exact same parable in three different contexts with three very different understandings of one portion of the parable. Even denominationally, they've studied sermons. And when they've done this, they've realized that Baptists tend to focus much more on the younger son and the sins of the younger son, while Presbyterians focus primarily on the elder son. Exact same parable, but out of our own context, we begin to look at this story in a very different way. One of the problems, though, with a parable, especially a parable like this, is that because they are so uh, comfortable and because we know them so well that, as Barbara Brown Taylor says, they become almost like the velveteen rabbit at some point. They've lost their their eyes. It's lost its whiskers, all of its stuffing. It just kind of conforms to whatever, wherever you are. It just, you know, fits so cozy and comfortable that it loses its bite. It loses its ability to actually challenge you any 
more. And one of the struggles that we have as preachers, of course, is that, you know, in 2023, while there are many of us who know the story of, of what's oftentimes called the prodigal son, uh, there's also a much more biblically illiterate world, right? And so not everybody knows that, which is fine, right? But we have to kind of teach them what does this story mean? And so how do we best kind of broach this passage? And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to talk through it a little bit. This is what it's kind of saying. And then perhaps just give us one or two things to question or to ponder. So let's just go to the very beginning. There's a father with two sons, and the younger son asks for the inheritance, right? And as we know, this is almost like saying to the father, I wish that you were dead, right? Because that's what happens. You get an inheritance when you are dead. And so, so uh, you know, understandably, if you were the father, this would not be a great feeling to think that your son basically wishes that you were dead. And we get a sense of the weight of this by the way the Greek responds or the Greek reads whenever it says that the father gave him his inheritance. Because what it literally says is that the father divided to them the life. In other words, he is giving their sons, because if he gave it to a younger, he's also giving it to his older at that point, his very life. And this is much more than just the assets, but think about this. You poured into your child all of your life, and then he simply wishes that you were dead. And so he begins to see that all of this work and all of this love that he had poured into his son, he's just taking it, and with him, of course, a part of his heart, and he is leaving. The father gives the son this money and the son goes off. And you know this, the son then goes off and he begins to live uh, in this kind of way, what the NRSV calls a dissolute living. And before you know it, he's got nothing left. And then, of course, like Murphy's Law, right after that, a famine hits. So what does the younger son do? Well, he has to find some way to feed himself. So he goes and he finds what is likely a Gentile. And he, he begins to feed these pigs. And again, I probably don't have to rehash this. You know that for a Jewish person to feed pigs would not have been a good job. And it is at this place as he's kind of feeding these pigs where he begins to kind of finally reach the, 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 the bottom of the barrel, the bottom of the pit. And he realizes, wait, I don't have to do this anymore. And I want us to pause just for a moment and just thinking about the amount and the depth of the shame that he would have felt. You see, because he's brought shame, not just on his father, but the whole community. In fact, Ken Paley suggests that if the community had been able to get their hands on the young son, they likely would have killed him because of the amount of shame that they had brought him. And now here he is, and he's looking back at the decisions that he has made. He's looking at how he has divided his father's very life. And he has lost everything. See, a part of the reason why I think that this parable is so powerful and means so much to so many is because of the way that most of us can understand and feel this sense of shame. Most of us have something in our lives where if I were to say to you, tell me about a time when you have felt shame, you can almost immediately go to that place. I've been talking to a good friend of mine recently, and 
he'd kind of put his name in for a job and he was hoping to get it. In fact, he, he, he told uh, several people that he knows very well that he was applying for this. He was very excited about it. And, and then he didn't get it. And so he was struggling, right, with the shame of that. And he said, I don't even want to talk to these people. I, I don't even want to have to admit to them that I didn't get this job. And as we kind of continued to talk, it was interesting that as he's kind of wrestled with this for a few days, what he says is actually, you know, what I've realized is that I keep going back to about three or four decades earlier when he was in college and had to, had to drop out of college for a little while. And he says, you know, whenever this happened, all of a sudden I went back to that place. And I think this is, this is how deep-rooted shame is. It's rarely about just that one moment. We also kind of go back. Most of us have a moment in our lives where we can feel the emotion. I can remember it was 2011 or 2012 when I was in charge of this organization and we were putting on uh, what was supposed to be the big conference in Seattle. And so I had done, you know, some work to try to get this thing to go. And as we got closer to the date, it was clear that hardly anybody was going to come to it. And so we had, supposed to have two big speakers. We kind of eliminated one of them because we were going to lose a ton of money. And, and, and we decided, though, to still go ahead with it. And so we did. But I'm telling you, it was like a sprinkling of people. And I still had to be there, of course. And, and as I was there, you could just hear it. People, you know, the main speaker, he was disappointed, you know, that, that the other speaker couldn't be there. And, and the other people kept saying, yeah, I wonder why we couldn't get more people. It's too bad we didn't get more people. This would have been better if we had gotten more people. And the whole time, right, what am I hearing? Jerry, you are the worst. And I couldn't hide, and all I wanted to do, honestly, was just go somewhere and just weep. It was so embarrassing, so shaming, and I can immediately go back to that place and feel that feeling of being in the car when it was all over and just feeling the weight of it. Almost all of us. Understand the sense of shame. And so here is, this, here is this young son, the younger son, and he's in this place and he is about to go back to his father. Now there are people who would suggest, well, you know, this is all very manipulative. And there he is and he's coming up with how can I get back and oh, I know, I'll just say I'm, you know, a servant. And he never literally says I'm going to repent. He's probably not even sorry. Maybe they're right, but I think they're not. Because I got to tell you that if you get in a place where you are so low that you say, okay, I have got to go back and face this community and face my dad, I am here to tell you the likelihood is you understand the weight of what you have done. And so he says, okay, I'm going to go back and I'm at least going to be a servant to my father. And so as we think about him, think about the, 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 the fear and the shame as he gets closer and closer to his father, closer and closer to the community. What are they going to do? What is his dad going to do or say? And then far off in the distance, we are told, the father sees him and begins to run toward him. Now again, I'm guessing that this younger son at this point is wondering, well, I wonder what he's saying. I can hear him. He's yelling something. He's still too far away but what if what he's yelling, of course, is just anger? What if what he's yelling is just bitterness, you know, and he's coming, and what's behind him? Is that a weapon? What's happening right here? And man, dad is really running fast, and I hope he slows down, because if he doesn't slow down, he's going to run into me. And at that 
moment. The father, it seems to me, does not slow down until he absolutely collides with his son. This is the moment when shame collides with grace. And at this point, the son, he's already got this kind of, you know, he's just been rehearsing it again and again. And he begins, okay, you know what? I know that I can't be your son. And the dad just envelops him. And he's like, shut up. And he says, get the ring, get the sandals, get get the cloak, bring them all. Let's go. We are going to celebrate. And in this moment, this is this remarkable embrace. One of the remarkable things about this story is that, is that one of the helpful things is that there are other stories that people oftentimes parallel. It helps us to experience, I think, this incredible grace and shame uh, in this remarkable way. I was, uh, I, I was reading many of these stories this past week. The one that most stuck with me, for understandable reasons, because I have four daughters, is one that uh, this woman, Jean Geetson, writes about in an essay she talks about how when she was growing up, she and her father were actually really close. And those moments, you know, a lot of times, you know, we have these kind of moments when we're uh, children, especially if they're repeated, that we most love. And every year when they would have this, uh, this family reunion, they would go and they would play this song. I- I'm actually not familiar with it. It's maybe you guys know it. It's called the Beer Barrel Polka. <laughs> a few of you apparently are, you know, fans. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll play it here at some point. Um, but whenever they would play the beer barrel polka, the father would come up and he would kind of tap her and he'd say, I believe this is our dance. And so they would go and they would dance. It was this remarkable memory that she had. But when she got into her teenage years, you know, she, there's a particular time when the song came on and she was just, you know, in a mood. And when the, when the father came and kind of tapped her on the shoulder, she said, you know what, just, just go. I don't want to do this dance. And so the father never asked her again. And she said, you know, as we kind of went on in those teenage years, you know what they can get. And, you know, I'd go out on a date and I'd come back and my father would be in the recliner in this bathrobe. And he clearly kind of been sleeping, kind of not. And she'd come in and she'd be like, why are you here? What are you doing? And he'd say, I'm just waiting on you. She said that when she went off to college, she could not wait to get away. She was just kind of tired for whatever reason. And so years passed And at some point, she kind of maybe, I don't know, she didn't use this language, but maybe she came to herself. And so she says that she went back to one of these reunions. She decided to come, and of course, what came on again but the beer barrel polka. And so she went up to her dad, and she tapped him on his shoulder, and she said, you know, Dad, I believe this is our dance. He looked at her and he said, I have been waiting for you. I love that story because I think it continues to give us a glimpse of this remarkable love and grace of God. Because it is a God, you see, who waits on us even when we do not want him to. And it's a God who meets us in the middle of wherever it is that we may be. Whatever road we find ourselves in. Whatever shame we are enveloped by. And he wraps 
us up beyond what words could ever convey. And when we think ourselves unworthy, he gives us grace. When we call ourselves slaves, he calls us his son and his daughter. He takes our humiliation and our shame upon himself. And while he embraces us, he calls for a robe and a ring and sandals and a celebration. It is a remarkably beautiful story, but I think all of us need to hear. Because all of us, whether in the past or now or in days ahead, will go through these moments of shame that are isolating and we will wonder. And what we need to do is go back to Luke 15, 11 and begin to read and to remember this God who comes running after us. It is a remarkably beautiful story, but it is also not the whole story. Because you see, the one who enters in, the older brother, he comes in and he brings, I don't know how else to put this, but a bit of reality into the story. Because the brother comes in and immediately, right, what becomes very clear is you have a classic case of sibling rivalry. Most of us know about sibling rivalry, right? If you have a sibling, I think that's the only time that you wouldn't is if you didn't have any siblings. Because by and large, we all have them. There are many of us, of course, who oftentimes think that our parents treated our children differently. And amazingly enough, the children differently. Amazingly enough, we typically think that, uh, that, that we got treated worse than our siblings, right? Isn't that weird how that works? Even in my own family, I'm quite amazed now, 8 through 14, and it's already beginning to percolate, right? I wondered how long it would take. It's been within the last year or so, I would say, when all of a sudden it's been brought up, oh, well, we couldn't do that when we were her age. Must be nice. And quite frankly, we are getting tired, so it could be true. But he comes, right? And what does, he, what does he begin to do? All of a sudden, he begins to point out all the realities, all the different ways. He, of course, is the responsible brother. Whereas you also then have the wild brother. You have the brother, he who is steady, stable, and plodding. And then you have the golden child who seems to never be really get in trouble and gets away with everything. And so immediately we begin to say, oh, this is sounding familiar. The other thing, of course, that's very familiar is the fact that they actually are much more alike. They resemble themselves well beyond what they would prefer to see. You see, the truth is they've both gone off to a distant land. The younger son went off to a distant land physically the older son went to a distant land emotionally and relationally. Both of them, this is striking to me. I don't sure I've noticed it before. Both of them struggled with looking at their dad as a father. Remember, what does the younger son say? Well, I, I'm not going to be a son. I'm just going to be a slave to you. You, can, you don't need to be my father. You're just going to be my kind of master or owner. 
What does the older son say? The older son says, hey, I've been working for you like a doggone slave, right? So in other words, what he sees his father as is not a father, but as a slave owner. I've been wondering, I don't have time to go off on this, but I'm trying to make notes for the next time I preach on this. Do we resemble them in that way? Do we have a tendency to oftentimes think of God more as this master who rules over us like a slave owner to a slave? Or do we look at him more often simply as the father that he continually tries to tell us that he is? But what I really appreciate about this older brother that I think we need to give him his due is that he gives us and helps us to see a more fully orbed view of what love and grace actually looks like. You see, we're drawn to the first part. It's the love story. We love this, right? It's, it's so beautiful, and that is good and right. But when we don't hear the older brother and take him seriously, then we don't understand what love and grace actually requires. We fall in love with a sentimentalized view of love if we only look at the younger brother. It's a bit like, uh, the, the, I've done a lot of weddings of late, and uh, almost always uh, I talk about, of course, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, right? And I love this passage because I think in many ways it reflects real love, right? Because what does Paul do? How does he start this out? If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Isn't it so Shakespearean? If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains... The Hallmark card says, but do not have love. I have nothing. It's beautiful. It's dramatic. It's all true. But it's not where Paul ends. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not boast. Right? It's not envious or rude. It's not irritable or resentful. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. This is love. It is beautiful. It is majestic. And it is hard and sacrificial. It is both of those things. And if we are not willing to engage with both of those things, then we do not actually understand love. And you see, what the older brother does is he comes in and he makes abundantly clear that you cannot just leave us with good feels, but that love and grace require a willingness to also 
sacrifice. And that may be most important for those of us who are older brothers or sisters to understand. Mark Skinner has this great point, which is that the older son understands and articulates the scandal of God's grace better than any theologian ever Look, let's give it to the older brother. He sees pretty accurately what's happening. My younger brother, your son, he went off. I stayed. While he was out in dissolute living, living it up with prostitutes, guess what I was doing, Dad? Working. Breaking my back. He gets a fatted calf. And let's remember, I brought this up before. Whose fatted calf is it actually now? It's his fatted calf. And what do I get? I don't even get a goat. Oh, skinny. I don't even get that thing. All of those things are absolutely true. There is nothing that is untrue about anything that he says. In fact, Craig Barnes points this out. You can disagree with him if you want, but he says, you know, the father really doesn't correct him in any of this. When he comes up, he's not like, no, 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 that's not true. You, uh, you weren't working. Oh, you were working. Oh, yeah, he did go. Oh, yeah, I guess this is your calf. Maybe I should have asked. I don't know. He's actually pretty accurate. In fact, the older brother has been called the counter, the accountant if you will. You know, he's got basically some, I don't know if it's abacai in the plural, but abacuses maybe, I don't know. He's got them lined up. And he's got the one over here for his brother's sins, and it's just, and he's got the one over here for all the good things he's done. And sure enough, on balance, he is much better, in a much better place than his brother. Now, a lot of times when we get to this place, what happens is preachers, and I get this, I understand, and I may be wrong on this, but what we try to do is we try to figure out how to make the older brother evil so that he feels really bad at some point so that then he can understand that he needs grace just like everybody else. And certainly, he's not perfect, and yes, we all need grace. But I am not convinced that the way that we kind of work our way through this parable is by figuring out all the different ways, oh, well, he's bitter, he's this, he's that, that he's really kind of bad in the long run. Honestly, I think he's, he's probably lived pretty well and done pretty much in many ways at least what God would want him to do. I actually think that this part of the story and what the parable is asking of the older brother, and perhaps you or me, is whether or not we would prefer to be right or whether we would prefer to be in relationship. Because at the end of the day, this is the often incredibly difficult question and the scandal of love and grace that we are forced to face. At the end of the day, what is this parable about? This parable, if we think about it and take a step back, is all about 
the relationship. Think about this. Marisol Wolf, who's a great theologian, he makes this painfully obvious but also often overlooked point, which is that do you know the names of any of these people in this parable? No. How do we know them? How are they defined? It is always a relational designation. Father, son, brother. And do you notice that what the father is always trying to do is help each one of them to call them by their name. He is trying to correct them to see how they are in relationship. Did you notice this? The younger son, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father tells him what his name is. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. Do you remember what the older uh, son says? I've been working like a slave for you. And the father looks at him and what is the very first word he says to him? Son, the older brother looks and says to the father, oh, this son of yours. And what does the father does? The father says, this brother of yours. Again and again and again, what the father is pointing out is the greatest difficulty that they are facing is the fact that they have forgotten that at the end of the day, they are a father and a son and a brother and a brother. So that while the brother, older brother keeps holding up the abacus, he keeps pointing out the score, which let me be clear, I think the score is absolutely true. What the father does is he never disputes the score. He keeps reminding them of the relationship. You see, what the older son has to decide, and it is not an easy decision if we can be honest, is whether or not the joy of being right is greater than the joy of celebrating his brother's return. The sacrifice that the older brother is going to make is that he is going to have to be willing to leave the abacus behind. To leave all of those good deeds behind. And at the end of the day, here's the truth. It is not fair. It is family. It is not logical. It is love. It is not graphable. It is grace. And as we briefly mentioned last week, you know what that younger son, that younger brother could easily do tomorrow? He could run away again. And there is a remarkable vulnerability that comes when you are willing to set aside all the right things that you have done and take the chance to say, I am going to celebrate the fact that you have returned even if you decide to go to a distant land again. There is a real risk in love and grace that if we are unwilling to take, then we quite frankly don't really understand it. You see, the Pharisees and scribes, remember there they are, they're standing outside the party. They're outside the table. They're looking at Jesus with all of these sinners, these younger brothers, and they are faced with the decision. Do we join the party that includes these outsiders and these outliers? 
Or do we stay outside and feel the rush of having been right? Does anyone know that rush of knowing that you are right? See, Jesus tells them these parables and he simply invites them into a love that, as one person has said, cannot be measured or tracked or managed. It isn't wrong to want to live and to look more and more like Jesus. It isn't wrong, of course, in many ways, for us to quite frankly be doing things that make us look more like him every day, every day, growing closer. The problem is, as Eugene Peterson points out, it's a problem that afflicts, by and large, the members of the church is that it, it's very easy to become self-righteous. And when you do so, the music that brings forth joy and celebration of yet one more sinner, one more broken person who has come into the party can feel less like a joyful thing and more like an injustice. And so Jesus simply lives, uh, leaves us with these questions. Can we who are the older brothers and sisters give up the abacus in order to come to the table? Can we give up on the joy of being right in order to engage in the joy of joining this party of grace and celebration? We are here this morning, and we're here in a place of shame, then we know that we are invited to this table, that it is always open to you. And the irony, of course, is that for those who have been following Jesus for quite some time, it may be hardest for us to realize that we have also been invited to this table. And to look at each person that is around it, not for what they have done or left undone, but as a brother or as a sister.